All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the deadly mayhem in Langley yesterday. The shooting rampage by a lone gunman it un- unfolded over several hours and multiple crime scenes. Four people shot, two killed, two injured. The 28-year-old shooter, Jordan Daniel Goggin, shot dead by police. So many questions today about this rampage, including did the shooter deliberately target homeless and marginalized people on the streets of Langley. Got reporter Ted Field standing by with the latest. First, have a listen to this report now. Global News reporter Chris Dow talking to some people on the streets of Langley yesterday. Have a listen. A shooting spree that lasted about six hours in the city of Langley. You never know, right? Could be just random, random people getting hurt. Two people killed and two others seriously injured after a lone gunman fired at multiple people in a series of attacks at several locations right across the city. Some of the victims believed to be transient or of no fixed address. It's like a despicable act, right? How, how could you hurt somebody who is in big trouble? Because if somebody's homeless. All right, let's have a listen to Sergeant David Lee from the RCMP speaking yesterday. It's still too early to discuss motive. We have a lot of information to cover. We're interviewing the suspects, family, associates, and hopefully through that information we'll be able to piece together what happened and what transpired to this. Okay, let's get the latest now from Global News reporter Ted Field. Ted, thanks for jumping on here this morning. Yeah, no worry. It's been a crazy day and a half, that's for sure, when it comes to the situation in Langley. Sure, absolutely, Ted. What can you tell us the latest? Let's talk about the uh, the shooter who was uh, shot dead by police yesterday jordan daniel goggin what do we know about this guy well kamal karamali a reporter last night was able to find some uh people that lived in the same uh, residence as mr goggin and they describe him as uh you know that something was going on with him in the last week or two he had been fairly been isolating himself uh one person said that he'd been sitting in his car a lot listening uh, smoking and just listening to loud music and uh it's one of those things where people sort of see something going on but don't really want to necessarily intervene but they know you know the the person living in the house is acting strangely isolating sitting in his car uh as they say smoking listening to loud music but again you never think that uh, something like this could happen um it is also very interesting uh, again today sort of like the day after people seeking answers and i know the the mayor of langley city val vandenbrock yesterday was very emotional and she's been she was on her morning show this morning and uh very honest uh, in terms of a politician because you know politicians sometimes go into the traditional politicians speak but she's sort of left going what do we do um, there's, you know, we have to sort of analyze what happens here. But as you say, it's it's transient uh, population. Is this a housing issue? Is this a mental health issue on on multiple fronts here uh, in terms of uh, of the victims, obviously, but also of the suspect? Sound like he he was dealing with uh, some demons as well. So again, it's yeah. sort of left to us to try and make some sense of some things that sometimes uh, lack sense. Let's have a listen to a little bit of what the city, the mayor of Langley had to say, Val Vandenbroek. Here she is speaking yesterday and getting emotional. Appears that maybe she knew some of the victims. Have a listen to this. I'm, I'm just heartbroken this morning. I, 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 I can't say it any other way because I know I know. Yeah, she's, she went on to suggest that maybe she knew some of the people who were victimized here yesterday. Ted, your thoughts? 
Yeah, and, and this is it. I mean, the Langley City um, is is a small town. I mean, there's the the township and the city, but the city is the downtown core. It's dealing with like every other community dealing with a homeless population, and the mayor, as as you heard, and we we talked to some people that work with uh, the 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 homeless, the transient population down there. They know these people. Uh, yeah. They know the challenges that they're going through, and again, the struggles of of housing. Just as an example, just sort of this timeline again for people to understand this concept of the incidents. Uh, midnight near the casino, which is in Langley City, the first shooting. Then, it, then three hours later. So, and then this is a fairly, you know, condensed area where you could drive in this whole area probably in the five, ten minutes. So it was three hours later that there was a shooting in, and this was a shooting at a place called Creekstone Place. This is a supportive housing facility. Right. So this is where people are, have housing. Uh, and, uh, and a fellow was shot and killed uh, there. Uh, and then it was another two hours uh, before there was another shooting shooting just uh, maybe two kilometers away at the Langley City bus loop. And then the final shooting at uh, 545 at the Langley Bypass uh, near uh, 200th and the Bypass, where it appears, uh, uh, again, somebody was shot in the leg, uh, may have been riding a bike. Uh, we, we saw yesterday that there, there appeared to be a uh, property of somebody who had been shot and injured, and that was uh, subsequently where police shot and killed the suspect. So, again, this 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 wasn't like minute by minute something happening. There was, there was large gaps between these yeah. incidents in a fairly and again what was we don't know what the fellow was doing was he just sitting in his car uh and then just moving along or what but uh yeah again it's uh it's it's troubling to say the least speaking to global news reporter ted field about yesterday's deadly violence on the streets of langley the reports that we're hearing about homeless people marginalized people on the streets of langley being targeted here homeless advocates just out heartbroken and saddened by this what do we know about that because police were very careful yesterday in their comments on this right what whether these people were deliberately targeted because they were homeless or were they just sort of targets of convenience that this guy saw these people on the street what do we know about that ted yeah, and that's, again, we're hoping for another, and the police indicated there should be briefings later on to give us some of those answers. Of, of course, when the, when the suspect involved uh, was shot and killed, yeah. it doesn't have, you know, open that opportunity to try and get to the bottom of what was going on within his mind. But you're right. Um, uh, just talking to some of the homeless people down there, our reporters, is that they, they you know, they, they feel threats and harassment all the time. People just driving by screaming at them or whatever. Uh, they, they look for places that feel relatively safe. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of those shootings are near some of those uh, facilities that offer support to the people, uh, you know, in terms of that downtown core. Uh, I guess the other issue, uh, Mike, that was also brought up was just the the alert system. Um, yes. By the way, and, and I don't think we got to report much of this yesterday because we did t- talk about the alert system, but Ecom yesterday around three o'clock sent out a tweet saying, don't call 911 to complain about the alert. People were calling 911 to complain that they got the alert. Yeah, I'm not sure why That's someone would to want to it. complain about that. Yeah, we've seen that happen well, so before. Don't call 911 to do it. You, you, if yeah. you want to complain, fine, but you don't call the, the emergency line to complain about something. You know, it's, right. uh, that's a little bit strange, you know. It was, it was interesting to see the emergency alert system used in a, in a situation like this. this. is unusual, to say the least. And I guess there will be a review about precisely how it was used, when it was used, and if it was effective, right? 
Yeah, and and the, again, the police won't talk about this, but uh, this is unusual. We don't see alerts like this. We, traditionally, we the only time that tone goes off is when they're testing it, and we're thinking of it's for uh, you know an earthquake or a tsunami alert. So when you saw right. something like this, but you do get a feeling that when that Nova Scotia shooter situation occurred and the RCP attempted to use Twitter to to let people know that they're erring on the side of caution. It was also interesting in terms of that initial uh, the the alert that went out that they indicated that there was uh, the the shooter appeared to be uh, targeting transient people and as you've, you've heard on the news there's concern that maybe transient people don't have phones or don't have the technology that would have that but I guess the idea of okay we're going to send this out and hopefully people that know the transient people or know that population will alert or attempt to alert that something's going on. Ted thank you for your work on this story thanks for coming on today. Take care. All right, welcome back. Let's keep talking about the deadly rampage on the streets of Langley yesterday. The emergency alert that went out from police early yesterday morning warned an active shooter appeared to be targeting transient victims. In the aftermath of this event, many questions being asked. Did this shooter deliberately target homeless people? Or were the victims targets of convenience for a deranged gunman? The answer to some of these questions may never be known after police yesterday shot the shooter dead. Okay, as soon as the news broke yesterday on this, posts on social media were quick to point a finger at Joe Rogan, the very popular podcaster. He has millions of listeners, and his controversial remarks earlier this month about homeless people in Los Angeles. Specifically, a joke he made about shooting homeless people. Now, we've got a great panel standing by to discuss this. But first, have a listen to Joe Rogan here. This is the July 14th episode of his show. He's having a conversation here with comedian Tom Segura about L.A.'s homelessness problem. Have a listen, then we'll discuss. And then uh, we're on the underpass, and there's porta-potties. Not one either, like four, like a deck of porta-potties. And then someone has a car parked there on the sidewalk so they're like half blocking a lane and then they have like a a canopy draped over their car and they have just stacks of sh- and then next to it was a dresser they had a dresser like this is where they live they're that's just- really wild you know when when you see stuff like that on the streets at least in los angeles or maybe in california those are that's protected property like by law you know that like if you were so to you're go- not supposed to do that but and, and but like that's that person's property by law if you oh were to the go, homeless person's property yes. is protected yes hilarious mm-hmm. but they wouldn't arrest you if you shot somebody maybe mm-hmm. you should just go and shoot the homeless people i like your ideas and if nobody claims it i mean nobody does anything about violent crime in la anymore yeah they're just letting people out okay let's discuss now with my guest sean or sean is an activist and writer for scout magazine he is running for vancouver city council this fall sean thanks for coming on again thanks for having me Okay, also on the line, Ari Goldkind. Ari is a criminal defense lawyer, legal analyst, and political commentator. Mm-hmm. He's a regular on this show. I'm pleased to welcome him back as well. Hi, Ari. Good to be with you, Mike. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much for coming on. Sean, let me go to you first with your thoughts on, you know, the Joe Rogan comments we just heard there about shooting homeless people. I think clearly, we I played it at length there because we wanted to hear mm-hmm. the full context of these remarks. Uh, I think it's clear there he's joking, right? But w- what do you think about what he said? Yeah, I mean, what he's angry about is the misapplication of law in this case. He's angry not 
that, you know, he's angry that he can't, like, physically remove these people's property, and he's angry that these people's property is protected. And what he's saying is that, like, and and he's probably right. It probably is easier to to shoot a homeless person than to actually remove that property. Like, he's actually probably right. Um, but what's really concerning is that it just matches a sort of a rhetoric of dehumanization of the homeless population. He's disgusted. He's disgusted not that homelessness and inequality exists. He's disgusted that he can see it. And I think that's important to note. Ari Goldkind, your thoughts on it? Well, I, I was fully prepared, guns the blazing pun intended, to disagree vociferously with your guest, who's running for a seat, which is important. But his first point, I think, was a very fair point. His second point, I totally disagree with. Joe Rogan was doing nothing of the sort. Anybody who wants to pretend that tax-paying ordinary average citizens who deserve to not have to walk by what they're walking by in L.A., Venice Beach, San Francisco, as if this is just a feature uh, of society now, I think really doesn't understand uh, the value of what taxes should pay for. But Joe Rogan was, as your guest said, making a very important point. You did the right thing by playing it till the end, because we live in a society now where people simply can't take a joke. Now, why can't they take a joke? Because there's money to be made by being faux, F-A-U-X, outraged. That's where the money comes from. That's where victimhood is wielded as a sword, not a shield. So the idea that Joe Rogan has anything to do with this or dehumanized anybody, Joe Rogan's point was one that we really should be talking about today, which is in L.A. and San Francisco as a result of two of the worst district attorneys, not something we have in Canada, by the way, Mike, Two of the worst district attorneys in the history of the criminal justice system. It is open season on ordinary law-abiding people to be shot at. And the point he was making, which your guest, Mr. Orr, rightly picked up, is it's much easier to shoot somebody and get away with it than, for example, in a Toronto example, clear an encampment. Okay, do you think, though, let me go back to Sean Orr. Sean, do you think, though, that Joe Rogan went too far? with his comments there that perhaps they could be misinterpreted that a guy who has millions and millions of listeners and a lot of power and a lot of influence should be more cautious about what he says, or do you think it was, it was all right. What he said? I mean, Joe, Joe Rogan has every right to be a bad person and he is a bad person. I don't think that we can argue against. He uses it. He's a, Okay, Sean, you're you're breaking up a bit on your phone. We're gonna try and we're gonna try and correct uh, fix that here. But Ari, let me go. Let me ask you the same question. Do you think a guy like Rogan, with his influence and and power, should be more cautious about what he says? Well, I think what Sean Orr just said, who's running for council, that he's calling somebody he doesn't know a bad person because that person made a joke that he didn't like. That's about as destructive in anything in our political discourse as anything I've heard. Okay. So that, to me, was a ridiculous statement, and perhaps it's a good thing that his phone cut out at that moment. I don't think Joe Rogan has to apologize for anything. He's allowed to tell whatever jokes he wants on his podcast, and if people make the ridiculous complaint that, well, if Joe Rogan makes a joke three years ago, that makes a person in Langley, British Columbia, go out and target homeless people. Here's the reporting yesterday, Mike, which nobody seems to want to talk about, because you, you have to read to the bottom of the article, and on Twitter, Mike, 
as you know, yeah. people read 140 characters. Let's get to what the police say. Sure. The <clears throat> police say that investigators have not confirmed if the victims are homeless, simply that they involve transient victims. Whether they do or they don't, the idea that Dave Chappelle or Joe Rogan or Andrew Dice Clay or uh, Bill Burr are responsible for what insane, evil pieces of garbage go out and do because a podcaster or comedian makes a joke and these people call for more censorship rather than less the reason the world's going the wrong way mike is because people are forced to be too silent not allowed to speak back to sean or sean what do you say to that hey i hope you can hear me um yes i can can. go ahead joe rogan has every right to be a bad person and he he is um you know he's a transphobe he's uh anti-vax uh, he regularly uses the N-word. Um, he compared a black neighborhood um, to Planet of the Apes. He's totally allowed, um, but also the outrage is allowed. And it's funny that your guest talks about monetizing outrage because that's exactly what Joe Rogan is doing. That guy is a millionaire. He's making money off of being a shock jock journalist. This is like a, a host of Fear Factor or he's an MMA host. Like, who, who, like, why are we taking this guy seriously? I agree. This is completely deflecting from the point. It's not about free speech. This is about protecting vulnerable people in our society. And I don't know why we're not talking about us. Well, let's, well, let's talk. Well, let's talk about. Let's talk. Bring it closer to home here. Do you think that? Exactly. Do you think that the the way homeless or marginalized people are framed in, in the media or in, in political discourse? So we got a an election coming up here in Vancouver this fall, where the issue of homelessness and disorder on the streets is as big is a big issue. Do you think the way exactly. those issues are discussed and framed, Sean, in any, in any way kind of you know marginalizes or or, or vilifies pe- poor people on it the street? Does. It does, and it stigmatizes. And if you look at some of the editorials of the Vancouver media in the last, you look at Daphne Bram saying there's no humanity in the downtown east side, uh, or you look at uh, Linda Steele talking about enough is enough, or, or, or let's look at John Cooper, who's running for mayor. Two hours after these murders, he goes and says, let's clean up the streets. You know, and this from a party, MTA, whose financial agent said, let's go and harass these lowlifes. So what, what do you expect when you say that's a call to action? That's not just free speech. That's saying, let's go harass these lowlifes. And so is it a surprise that somebody does? Surprise that somebody takes matters into their own hands? This is what that rhetoric leads to. It leads to vigilantism. There's 1,800 people who are victims of hate. 500 people in the United States have been killed because of their, because of their homelessness. Okay. Five hundred. Like, like, put that into context. And these people deal with these kinds of attacks every single day. This is not All an right. isolated incident. This isn't Joe Rogan. This is us. This is us as a society. Ari, Ari, your response, and we'll fit a break in here. Well, those numbers are false, first of all. So anybody who wants to dig into them, dig into the actual numbers. They do this with other issues to say that certain people are killed because of something rather than happening to be of a certain group. Those are two totally different things. But at the end of the day, you know, your audience and voters in your city have to make a decision. Do you support somebody who says you can't make jokes, you can't speak your mind, you can't say what you want, because if some gun-owning or gun-possessing lunatic piece of garbage, by the way, in a country where we're not supposed to have guns, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, goes out and does something, we all just have to sit quietly so that the victim parade gets to tell all of us to be quiet. I think that's a very dangerous society. Okay, Nobody's saying that. 
Okay, let's keep talking about the deadly shootings on the streets of Langley yesterday. Have homeless people become targets for abuse, harassment, violence, and worse in our society? Got two great guests on this topic. Sean Orr. Sean is an activist and writer. He's running for Vancouver City Council this fall. Ari Goldkind. Ari is a lawyer, legal analyst, political commentator. Hey, Sean, just before the break, we were talking about the discussion in politics and and media around homelessness and poverty. So, like, are you saying that we can't have a discussion about crime and disorder on the streets of Vancouver? Like, later on today's show, we're going to talk about the tent city down on Hastings Street and the order by the fire department to clear it out because it's a fire hazard. Mm. I mean, if you have a rational discussion about that, do you think that that increases, like, you know, makes homeless people more the target of abuse and harassment? No, and I think this um, talk about free speech is a real distraction. Um, this is an excellent opportunity for us to just reflect on how we talk about homeless people. Like, Ari has a really good opportunity here to uh, have some self-awareness and to reflect and to think about our policy failures that have allowed homelessness and inequality to get out of control. And just look at the language we use. We call them crackheads. We call them junkies. We don't we dehumanize them constantly. Um, we don't treat them as, as people. And you know, like if there's a vi- if there's violence at a at a at a tent city, the entire tent city is blamed. Oh, this it's crimes out of control. But if there's a stabbing at an apartment, nobody says that entire apartment is to blame. Right? Ari, like to, Ari, what is good? Look Ar- at how we, we we talk, and I just, I just think we have to go about this with compassion. Let's get Ari's response on that. Ari, go ahead. What do you think of that? Well, I've had the time now since Sean invited me to do that to reflect on my own comments and let me res- let me respond to my reflection. I don't accept anything he said. Nothing he said is true. Nobody demonizes them in the way that he wants to make his bread and butter and get elected by saying people do. What people are saying is that there are junkies. They should not be able to invade and live in public parks. In my city, it's an epidemic, and it took probably two years to get the encampments out everybody has sympathy for people who find themselves homeless for reasons that are out of their control nobody should have sympathy for people who find themselves homeless for reasons that they don't seek help or are in that lifestyle for a series of entrenched reasons and as a criminal defense lawyer trust me i'm aware of that this is a society that has to make a decision do a number of 50 or 100 or 150 people who will not move, who will not abide by any order of any city, are they able to make Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, Calgary worse for every law-abiding parent who simply wants to walk down a street without crawling over people, who wants to go to the park without being interfered with by people blaring music or living in tents? There are other solutions But if we can't tell the truth about what's going on in these big cities, you are having a small number of people take over city property that should be open and available to the reasonable use of all people who pay taxes. And by the way, a lot of taxes, not only to live in that city, Mike, but to provide social services that many people in these situations will not avail themselves of. Okay, running out of time, just a couple of minutes left. Sean, Sean, your response to that? Yeah, some some real classic uh, conservative right-wing talking points. Of course, he brought up taxes. Of course, he brought up personal responsibility. When I asked us to reflect on how we as a society, society let this happen, 
And what he's mad at, frankly, is capitalism. This is a result of capitalism. You can't have shiny towers, luxury condos, spinning chandeliers under bridges without also having tent cities on the street. You made both of those things. This is a problem. This is a systemic problem. This is a structural problem. It's a problem of inequality. I'm glad that you're mad, Ari. I'm glad that you're upset. Let's talk about it. No one is saying that you can't talk about it. People are saying, hey, maybe don't say shoot the homeless people. Maybe, to- maybe tone back a bit, you know? Maybe don't call them junkies and crackheads. That's all people are saying. Let's have a rational discussion, as you said, Mike. Okay. You know, thir- we have, look are, at the real big, 30s- big problems. 30 seconds left. individual blame. 30 seconds left. We started with Sean. So, Ari, I'll give you the final word. you got 30 seconds. Go ahead. That's fine. The, the question that only concerns me, Mike, in the discussion is what's true and what's false? Not what does somebody say their truth should be or what their lived experience should be. Are a number of people junkies? Yes. Are a number of people crackheads? Yes. Are a number of people there suffering from mental health issues that they have no control over and they've been let down by an unequal society? Yes. But that doesn't mean that the city of Vancouver or my city should look the way that your guest wants it to look. My okay. view is that these cities should be I don't want it to and made like livable that, for all. I don't Sean, want Sean. it to look like that. In the face of this deplorable evil, the church kneels before God and implores his forgiveness for the sins of her children. All right, welcome back to the show as we talk about the visit by Pope Francis to Canada now. And you just heard part of the Pope's remarks yesterday in Alberta, the historic apology for residential schools, uh, the Pope uh, continuing a full day of activities on his Canadian tour today. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Rye Moran from the University of Victoria. Rye is a member of the Red River Métis, and he's a founding director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Rye, thank you for taking the time today. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Thank you. Rye, let's talk about the the history that was made yesterday with Pope Francis and uh, his apology yesterday. You're an expert on the residential schools and the experience of, of Indigenous children in these schools in Canada. What did you think of the apology yesterday? What went through your mind as you listened to it? Well, what went through my mind, I think, was that this does partially respond to the TRC's calls to action that were issued uh, well over seven years ago now. Uh, and think partially, I think what the apology did was acknowledge some of what we were hoping for, but certainly not all of what we were hoping for. There is uh, a whole systemic uh, building, construction, maintenance of the residential school system and the processes of aggressive colonization that we didn't really hear atoned for in the, in the apology. And I think there's a lot of people still waiting for that and perhaps even disappointed uh, by the fact that that wasn't present in yesterday's uh, words. Yeah, that, that's the impression that I'm getting to in the last couple of days and speaking to Indigenous leaders and analysts, residential school survivors, that very notably the Pope yesterday apologized for the actions of members of the church, but he seemed to seem to avoid accepting any kind of institutional blame by the Catholic Church as a whole. And just to give an example of that, let me play this for you, Rye, get your thoughts. So 
Here is part of the Pope's apology yesterday. Here, of course, you'll hear the voice of an interpreter. Have a listen. I ask forgiveness in particular for the ways in which many members of the Church and of religious communities cooperated, not least through their indifference, in projects of cultural destruction and forced assimilation promoted by the governments of that time, which culminated in the system of residential schools. I thought that was uh, an interesting part of the Pope's remarks yesterday, Rye, when he, he talked about members of the church. He apologized for their cooperation with the government. Very, very, I, I thought very prominently mentioning this with the governments that was administering this. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that was one of the lines that really stuck out in my uh, mind as well, specifically in that it did individualize the responsibility rather than collectivize the responsibility within the, the church. And it wasn't just a handful of actions. This was very deliberate, conscious, planned policy. It was policy that was enacted world over, not just here in Canada, but world over as missionaries were sent out to convert, sometimes forcibly convert Indigenous peoples into, uh, well, Christianity. Uh, that that forced conversion was often um, uh, met with great deals of violence and certainly was very strongly reinforced by notions of cultural and religious superiority. That has left uh, lasting scars world over, not just here in Canada, world over. And this is the place that we need to see the Catholic Church getting to, recognizing and atoning for these actions world over. If we look specifically at the TRC's call to action, it says that uh, we were looking for an apology very similar to what was given in Ireland uh, mm-hmm. and uh, also to other Indigenous peoples and in other places in the world, reflecting the fact uh, that we are talking about global systemic harms inflicted on some of the most vulnerable in society. Let's play another part of the Pope's apology here. And uh, again, like pay, pay careful attention to the language here of Pope Francis <laughs> as we play this part of the apology. You hear the voice of an interpreter here again. Let's have a listen. I am deeply sorry. Sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppressed the indigenous peoples. Yeah, okay, there. So, again, like, you know, he's talking about many Christians there. He's sorry for the actions of many Christians, you know, not kind of uh, accepting sort of institutional blame by the church as a whole. I mean, do you think that's kind of. deliberate like you know i I imagine you know the the vatican uh legal department looked very carefully at the wording of this apology your thoughts well i think that uh latter statement that you know uh legal department was certainly involved in this would be consistent with what we have seen throughout all of the truth and reconciliation commission's work and when i was negotiating with the catholic entities for example over their records Frequently, uh, we were speaking with their legal team, not with the, you know, their, their actual religious officials or even their lay people that were responsible for the operations. Um, I think one of the things that we also have to remember here, though, is it's, it's, it, while this is an apology for the Pope, and we can absolutely look at what the Vatican has been doing, the Pope's work here in Canada is a direct reflection of the status of the relationship between Catholic entities and Indigenous peoples, and we cannot underestimate uh, the power that Canadian bishops and other Catholic entities have had here in this country in either preventing this apology from happening before or shaping and crafting how it actually rolled out this time.
the TRC very clearly issued a call to action to the Pope and to Catholic uh, officials saying that we wanted to see an apology a year after the release of the TRC's calls to action. This was reinforced by Indigenous leaders. This was reinforced even by the Prime Minister at that time. It did not happen, not because of the Vatican, but largely because Catholics here in this country weren't ready to take that step. And that's still a symbol of the hard work that needs to be done. Okay, Rye, let me just interrupt you there for a moment as we go to the CKNW newsroom for some breaking news right now. I'm Gord McDonald. Not guilty. A B.C. Supreme Court jury in downtown Vancouver has just rendered its verdict in the Jake Furtanen case. It is found the former Canuck not guilty of sexual assault. Last week he was on trial and the jury started deliberating yesterday. They have decided former Vancouver Canuck Jake Furtanen is not guilty of sexual assault. This is in the case of a young woman in a downtown Vancouver hotel room five years ago. Last week, the 25-year-old hockey player testified she was an enthusiastic participant. The woman testified she repeatedly said no and told Vertanen she did not want to have sex with him. Once again, a jury in B.C. Supreme Court in downtown Vancouver has found former Vancouver Canuck Jake Vertanen not guilty of sexual assault. I'm Gord McDonald. All right. Thank you, Gord, for that breaking news. That's why you always keep it locked here to CKNW for the breaking news. As soon as we know, you will know. Not guilty. The verdict there, as you heard, Jake Furtanen, the the former Vancouver Canucks forward who had been charged with sexual assault, just found not guilty in court. Make sure you keep it locked here to CKNW for the remainder of the day for more coverage of that breaking story at this hour. My guest right now, though, is Rye Moran, University of Victoria, as we continue talking about Pope Francis's visit to Canada and his historic apology yesterday. One of the other things uh, that the Pope said yesterday, Rye, for your thoughts, is is what happens next, like going forward here. And I heard him talk about further investigations to get to the truth of what happened in the residential schools. What did you read into that? Like, in your experience, and you're probably one of the best guys in in the country to talk about this, has the Catholic Church been cooperative in, you know, you talked about releasing documents. We heard the Pope there say today that he's he's in favor of further investigation. Your thoughts? Well, that that was another line that uh, really struck me, and, and I have to admit, raised my eyebrows a bit, because I thought, wow, I wonder what that investigation might be because we've just gone through this massive process of having a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was tasked uh, by the Catholic entities, by the Anglican, United uh, Government, uh, United Church, Government of Canada, uh, AFN, ITK, to get to the bottom of what occurred. And that was uh, a settlement of the largest class action lawsuit in Canadian history at the time. Uh, Catholic entities were party to this investigation that occurred in Canada, and we did have problems along the way obtaining documents and obtaining the full cooperation of Catholic entities. One thing I can say, though, is that we have brought the Vatican into this conversation in a way that has not been seen before, and that is credit to the very hard work of, um, you know, uh, Commissioner uh, Wilton Littlechild. Having the Pope here, having Vatican officials here, is a deepening of the global understanding of what has occurred. I heard firsthand 
and saw firsthand yesterday when I was there in Masquachis, a number of Vatican officials uh, break down crying when they saw the list of names of the children that never returned home from the residential schools. And I heard firsthand with my own ears, uh, we didn't know. We didn't know that this occurred. To me, that says that we did achieve something quite powerful yesterday. There's still a long ways to go. And perhaps this investigation that they're talking about is not just looking at what has happened here domestically, but perhaps, perhaps, maybe with some hope, it opens up an investigation into really the role of Catholic entities and the Catholic Church in the suppression and oppression of Indigenous peoples world over. Uh, that would be a very significant step, and that is something that is required because the harm has been inflicted not just here in Canada, but world over. Rye, thank you very much for coming on today with your thoughts and analysis. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure to talk to you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking now about Pope Francis and his visit to Canada, the historic apology yesterday for Canada's residential schools. My guest is Jeremy Bergen, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Waterloo, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Jeremy, thank you very much for coming on. It's very good to be here. Jeremy, you've uh, done a lot of study and research into these type of apologies by churches around the world for these type of uh, historical uh, grievances and wrongs. What did you think of the Pope's apology yesterday? Well, uh, I think the first thing that I should say is it's not for me to say uh, how survivors or their communities may be responding to it. And I really uh, come to this, as you noted, as a, as a scholar of apologies and as a white uh, settler Canadian. Uh, it, it seemed to me that um, th- this was a significant milestone. Uh, I think the Pope did some things right, uh, but he uh, also uh, missed an opportunity uh, to uh, perhaps go further. Uh, and so um, there were some significant gaps in his statement as well. Okay, very interesting. Where do you think the gaps were? Well, uh, I mean, I do think that... Um, he, he certainly acknowledged uh, both that abuses and uh, the destruction of cultures were things that, that happened, but he really uh, identified individuals, that there were individuals that did these things. And certainly right. that's true. But I think it's also the case that these were, uh, this was the church uh, as an institution that embraced and ran these schools and supported the, the policy of assimilation. So I think that's one thing that's significant. Um, I think, as has also been been noted by by others, uh, failing to identify the doctrine of discovery, this idea that uh, when the Europeans arrived, if they didn't find Christians uh, in a a land, that it was therefore uh, land that they could simply claim. And I think that idea, um, you know, that the residential schools were part of, of a process of dispossessing Indigenous land, and I think that connection with the loss of land was something that the Pope really did not, um, really did not make uh, in his apology. Do you think when you compare this apology we heard yesterday to previous apologies, especially from Pope Francis, like I'm thinking back to the apology mm-hmm. for uh, the Catholic Church in Ireland, for example, a few years ago, where Pope Francis apologized for the quote-unquote crimes 
He apologized mm-hmm. for the crimes of the church. We certainly didn't hear language like that yesterday. Like, do you think that he has gone further in previous apologies than he did yesterday here in Canada? I, I do think he has. Um, you know, there, there have been instances where he does seem to acknowledge that it was the church uh, that was responsible uh, he did so um, in an apology in Bolivia in 2015, also related to, to Indigenous people in, in that region. Right. Um, so there were some, some curious and frankly puzzling omissions. So, for example, he also did not uh, mention the fact that there was sexual abuse in these schools. Oh, let, let me, let me, inter- let me inter- interrupt you there at that point, because we've got that precise clip here that I, I'll play for you. And Here's uh, Pope Francis apologizing yesterday for the effect of residential schools. You hear the voice of an interpreter here. And, and pay careful attention to what's not mentioned here. Have a listen, and I'll get your thoughts. Your languages and cultures were denigrated and suppressed. How children suffered physical, verbal, psychological, and spiritual abuse. How they were taken away from their homes at a young age and how that indelibly affected relationships between parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren. Okay, Jeremy, just a minute left here, sadly. So conspicuously absent, there was a mention of sexual abuse, right? It's puzzling, um, because uh, certainly the um, you know Canadian uh, bishops and other religious orders in this country who have uh, made their own statements of apology, have acknowledged sexual abuse. Truth and Reconciliation Commission was very clear how prevalent that was. So it's really hard to know uh, whether Francis is perhaps uh, not getting uh, the right kind of advice in terms of of uh, of, of what the, the nature of the situation was here. So that's frankly puzzling. Thank you very much for coming on with your analysis today. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity.